Good morning, afternoon, or evening. Please delete as appropriate. Hello there. Welcome to this episode number 436 of the Material Podcast. I am Andy Anatko, and I'm alone this week. Um, I'm uh, Flo's okay. She just having a, a she was just having a migraine on show day, which was also my fault because we were already going to be recording a day late because I wasn't well on our regular show night in which she was perfectly fine. Um, as you might be able to tell, my usual lush, rich baritone is now kind of close to like bass baritone because I am I am still dealing with like that cold I had a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it's not I've been through that really horrible part where or annoying part where it's like two or three days of, OK, I'm just going to be in bed because I just have no energy to do anything. And then you're done with that. And you think that, okay, well, after two or three days after that, I will be fine. But I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just the cold that's going around. But I still have this cough that is, like, lingering. And, um, like, certain parts of the day, it's fine. Uh, for some reason at night, it's like, eh, I start, like, barking like a spaniel or something like that. And it becomes super, super unproductive. So um, I have tea. <sighs> Drinking it out of a Relay.fm uh, Yeti mug. Thank you, uh, owners and operators of Relay FM, for an awesome, awesome, awesome show gift a couple of, couple years ago. Um, I don't want to say this is going to be sort of a half-assed show, given it. Well, I mean, it's already well. Literally, we have half as many asses as we normally do, and even figuratively. One brain is not as good as two brains, particularly when the missing brain is that of the beloved Florence Ion. Um, but we'll we'll get. Th- I'm going to go through one topic this this time because it's, there was a lot of really cool stuff that happened in the Department of Justice trial. Uh, just a lot of interesting things that came to light. We'll talk about that. Um, and even if this, but so this won't be a half-ass show. However, as I was like putting together like my personal show notes for today, it did occur to me that. I have a certain legitimate claim to like doing things in a half-assed fashion, or at least I'm, I'm in that kind of frame of mind where that's okay. Because, um, I, I subscribe to a lot of like car channels on YouTube and I'm not really interested in cars per se. It's the same reason why I subscribe to a lot of like sewing and historical costuming channels. I don't want to make myself a fitted waistcoat from the, (laughs) From the, from the early 1800s, I can't make myself laugh or I will stop start coughing. Please laugh on my behalf. Uh, but I'm but I'm interested in a lot of the people who do that sort of stuff. They make it into an interesting story. Um, so, and this is the time of year where half of the channels turn their programming in a direction that I don't like. There is a annual like car parts car like. It's not a car show. It's called SEMA. It happens in Las Vegas. And it's not necessarily about cars themselves, much as like aftermarket parts. Like if you've ever seen a really, really, really what was an absolutely gorgeous car left uh, that, that came out of a professional design team studio, and then it got sold to a customer who decided, oh, I'm going to, I want to put 18 more taillights and I wish they were, uh, I think there should be like a big scoop, uh, not on the hood, but like maybe on the roof of the car and it spits out flames. Like anytime you want to buy stuff like that, you stick on a car to make it look awful. You go to this show. <laughs> I think they also have cleaning products. So it's not like it's all bad. So, so I guess the part of the, uh, part of the draw of SEMA is that, uh, car modifiers, car builders, like will have like cars on the show floor so that, I don't know, kind of to distract customers away from exactly how horrible these aftermarket uh, extended 20-foot-long chrome with naked lady stickers on them exhaust pipes are, are, are actually are. They distract them from that to say, hey, here's kind of an interesting car that we've got built. So as a result, there are a lot of projects that the, the excuse, there's always this, this excuse that they're all this garage and all the workers in that garage are consummate professionals who are the best at their craft until the phrase, oh, well, we got to get this on on the truck to SEMA in six, six days. So I know the right way to do this brake line is to actually do them safely. But uh, we had this we had some string uh, that we got off of this old light fixture that was in the back of the shop. And you know what? We'll just fill the line with string and hopefully it'll, yeah, it's, 
it's it's not pretty. Like in in the in the worst case, it's like they they they'll have like they'll they'll have like a, a a marketing deal with like one of these booths, and they agree to like deliver like a 1964 Pontiac GTO. And this is the time of the year where the channel is like, well, we can only find we had we were committed to uh, they they needed a 1964 Pontiac GTO. We could only find one in the budget that we could afford, uh, and it was at a scrapyard uh in uh like a, one of the suburbs of berlin it had been crushed into a one-foot cube in 1987 and then for some reason they decided to dump it into a well full of hydrochloric acid for reasons that they couldn't really explain to me maybe there was sort of a language barrier there but well it is what it is we got nine days to get this car up and running and ready for sema and you don't want to you don't want to drive that car you don't i don't think you even want to be like in the where if, even this if this car was like not going to be started up it's just going to be pushed by humans that's a dangerous car to be anywhere around that's that's no good uh it's it's pretty funny to me because the the one car channel that i absolutely adore that kind of like kicked off kind of being interested in some of these channels was uh there is uh, a uh, uh a channel called a channel named after this this garage uh, called Bad Obsession Motorsports, and there are a couple of uh, northern Northern England mechanics that, like, their job is to they they prep like cars for racing. So you bring them like a you want to race, you bring them a car, and they will like, get the roll cage installed. They'll tune the engine. They'll do all this sort of stuff. It's not about like people have just won the lottery or just signed a, a pro sports contract who want something to flex <laughs> as they're pulling into the parking lot. They they're actually like race car people, and so. Project Binky is their big signature project. Um, they're kind of nuts. They decided that here is our 1982 like Mini Cooper, like a, truly a Mr. Bean car. I think it's the same like year, make, and model. Not not that was intentional, but that will put you in mind. It's not even like the cool new ones. It is 1982, rusted all the hell. Uh, and we also have this uh, this Toyota Celica that's sort of like a japanese import like race car like it's set up for high performance and that sort of stuff we want to take the engine and the four-wheel drive running gear and put it into this into this this mini cooper and it's of course it's way too big but they don't want to like modify the the, the mini cooper so that it doesn't look anything other than stock and so as a result everything they have to do is an enormous struggle and you would think wow i bet it would take like 10 years to do this properly and you're right they're doing it properly. So it's taking them 10 years and they're almost just done with it. And it's wonderful because there is absolutely no drama of any kind. All they do is uh, engineering and they explain what they're doing without teaching you how to do it. It's like for people who don't understand cars like, like I do, it will give you such a wonderful education and what every part of a car does and why it's important and what you have to do to get it working properly because they're going to do everything's going to have to be there and everything's going to be there properly and they'll do an entire episode where like at this uh, as you can imagine stuffing this entire engine and everything into this tiny 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 engine bay is like impossible so they are they're, they're it's it's almost as if they are having to fill it with water where they're trying to they have to make use of every single nook and cranny on it so there'll be an entire episode which okay so now it's time to uh, install the power steering pump and so they have to find a power steering pump that will work for this application that will fit in the space where they've decided this is the only space where we can put the power steering pump and okay so they found it great so they screw it in no they have to build a bracket for it because it has to mount somewhere and there's no place to mount it so the entire episode will be, will be just them making this mounting bracket so it's kind of a culture shock to see a new episode of project minky and then to switch over to yeah well this was a mclaren p1 a two million dollar supercar uh, i bought it for six hundred thousand dollars because it was literally in a hurricane and had been floating out to sea and it was filled with beach sand uh but hey we're gonna get ready for time for sema in two weeks I'm like oh dear here they are like made at Project Minky. They're manufacturing their own washers because they need that extra tenth of a millimeter and no off-the-shelf washer is going to work. As a result, you can imagine, it. you're not going to get like an episode a week out of Project Minky. It's like months. It, it depends on how much progress they can make and when they have enough for an episode. That's another thing that makes it such a great channel that they don't just simply say, and 
they're not going to manufacture, oh, no, the, the paint department of the shop and the, the interior department of the shop was having an argument. So we decided the only way to settle this was to have a paintball fight uh, on snowmobiles. Woo! And then there's a montage of this totally manufactured thing. No, it's some, and sometimes it can be like a year. I think it was a year since the last episode of Project Minky. I think now they're at the point where They've got all the parts together. It is in the shape. It is essentially what they have is a one-to-one scale model of a car. All the parts are there. And now the point is to get this, get this all, basically figure out if all the decisions they made were good ones and how this thing will drive. They're trying to get the, the, the dashboard ready and they've invented new ways of creating dashboard electronics because the old ways like weren't weren't going to work uh it's it's really quite cool i'm eager for them to see a new one however i'm glad that they're taking their time because again seeing a two million dollar supercar that was but I, i'm using the word literally literally here that was floating out to sea there's video of it just in the ocean just bobbing up and down dragging sand all over it and say, oh, well, see, we're going to, we can't, we don't have time to paint it. So we're going to wrap it. And we don't actually have time to like get the engine in there. So we're going to put this. He's like, oh dear. Yeah. It's kind of, it's, I'm, I'll, I'll take it. Ugh. I have another comment to make about, uh, about T, although I should probably move forward. Uh, well, I put the notes in, so I'm going to do it. The, the, the tyranny, I want, I want to talk about the tyranny of wire cutter because, uh, some years ago, actually, actually this, this ties into project pinky. One of the common, uh, common i don't know design elements tropes of an episode is that every time that they run to a problem and they have to sit and think about it and then they're going to explain to camera like exactly what the problem was and how they thought through it like there's the cut to like the, the the shelf in the garage where they have the they have the, the electric tea kettle and a hand just comes in and turns the kettle on because they're gonna to have to make some tea and think about this and this reminded me that wow i should probably get an electric tea kettle how, how does marketing work? You're trying to, people are trying to sell me things. They don't know that, oh, because I saw this little fun little cutaway in this, in this YouTube channel I like, that's what reminded me that, oh, why do I have like a kettle on top of a stove when an electric kettle will boil it much more easily? So, so this was a few years ago, went to wire cutter and wow, they, they make it so much more complicated. And uh, so they're recommending, actually refreshed it today to make sure, the Cuisinart CPK-17 Perfect Temp Cordless Electric Kettle with six preset temperature settings for different kinds of tea. Their labs uh, made tea in it for about a year with all kinds of different teas and blends, uh, timing and making sure the temperature was correct for each kind of tea and blend, cost $85. And the cheap of the, the budget pick at the time was still like 50 or $60 with all these features I didn't want. And finally I gave myself permission just to go to Amazon and buy the Amazon basics electric kettle. It costs like 20 bucks. It has a switch just like on project binky. It has a lever switch that you press it down. It clicks and turn and the light turns on. And when it's done, it clicks off and you know that you've got tea ready. It will boil water. I'm that's all I want boiling water to make tea and, and cocoa and stuff like that with, uh, yeah, that's, I, this is something that I think about a lot when I'm writing about technology, that there, there, there are times when you're generating data just to generate data, and people are not interested in necessarily hearing why you've decided to recommend this thing so long as your recommendation is sound and you can explain it in ways that are relevant. Uh, so, yeah, I'm very much a, you know what, a tea kettle is kind of a tea kettle. If you think that you can taste the difference between a green tea made with too hot water versus a, a, a black leaf tea that was made with too cold water, by all means, I'm the guy who tells you that, well, I bought the $20 Amazon Basics kettle. It's still running fine after three years. When it breaks, I will probably buy another one. I didn't have to care about the warranty because it's a $20 kettle. Go with God. Oh, let's see. What else did I put in my notes here? Um, yeah, this this ties into YouTube. Yeah, there's a, so there's there's a new Beatles song, maybe the last Beatles song. It dropped. This, I'm recording this on November third. It dropped on the November on November second. Haven't listened to it yet. Um, I'm not protesting or anything like that. I just haven't gotten around to it. I don't. But and maybe part of what's kind of putting me on pause here is knowing that this is going to be the very last Beatles song. And it's been what, 10 years since the previous kind of last Beatles song was released. 
And there's something about the last of anything that puts some expectations that you, that are kind of unfair for that thing. Uh, so this has to be like the greatest Beatles song ever, which means it has to be one of the greatest songs ever. There was a, uh, um, in my news feed, there was a headline or there was a review of it that said, that said the new Beatles song is perfectly good, but that's not good enough. And I'm like, oh, screw you. <laughs> Tell you what, why don't you be Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr in your 80s and still filling out arenas and, you know, explain, eh, it's, that's no good. Um, but let's see, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of mindful of like two movies specifically, Toy Story 4, and I think that you know where I'm going with this. They ended the series to Toy Story 3 in such a beautiful and perfect way. Okay, that was it's rare that you hear about how perfectly the last movie in a trilogy is going to be. Usually it's like the first movie or the second movie, the third movie, they have to, they have to tie everything up and they have to, there's a tendency to do everything that they ever wanted to do with these characters and stuff it into one thing. They landed that movie perfectly. Such a sad, sad, but emotionally with heft informed by the previous two movies made you happy, sad, and it made you feel as though these characters that you had learned to care about were in good hands and were going to have a good future that you didn't, that maybe are not going to be documented. And then they ruined it with toy story four. I didn't see it because I read the synopsis and I'm like, I don't think that that's, I think that's not only will I not like that, but it will make me like toy story three less. It's going to tarnish it. I already, uh, gave a hard pass to Rise of Skywalker, the last episode of these nine episode uh, Star Wars uh, saga, because, oh, like in the, in the final trilogy, I enjoyed the first one, and I'll admit because I'm a fan of Star Wars, and it was exciting to see how they were going to start to finish this finally, because I've been anticipating the last three movies since I was like since 1982, 1983, you know. Wow, how are they going to end this story about the Skywalkers or whatever? And the first one had problems, which I ignored. The second one. I kind of enjoyed, but I had to realize that, wow, I still have no idea who the bad guys are. I have no idea what, what this, I can't even remember the name of them, like the people who are essentially the empire now, like how did they come back into being? Are they really bad? Are they, it's an overwhelming force. And I realized that Rise of Skywalker, it's not going to answer any of these questions for me. I had, I had no faith in how well Disney could make a first movie, let alone a third movie. And it would only make me sad. Not, not, you know, uppercase sad. It would just, it would make me think, oh, well, I just saw a really dumb movie that I probably, I knew I wasn't going to like, and I didn't like it anyway, but it's invoking names of characters and situations that I have fond, fond memories of. And I've just sort of, it's, it's sort of like watching, sort of like going to see Bob Dylan today or Frank Sinatra during his last tour where you only went to the concert so that you could say you've seen them perform live, even though they are, I can't speak for, I haven't, but you know, I've seen video of Sinatra's. It's like, he was, even with the teleprompter, he, with the lyrics, he was going off lyrics. He was kind of lost. His voice wasn't there. Yeah. That's not remember me as I was, I think is kind of what they would have wanted. Um, nonetheless, I'm looking forward to seeing Frasier because I thought that, the reviews make it look like they've actually thought about pro the sort of concerns that I have and said, no, we're not going to just revive it for the sake of reviving it. We haven't, we know where he is like 10 or 20 years after the last series. And so we're not going to take him into his third act. That's nice. Okay. So let's just get on with uh, today's show. Like I said, I'm mostly going to be talking about stuff that came out during the last week of testimony in the department of justice, uh, antitrust case against Google for Google search. It's still fascinating. It's not just court procedures. It's more like here is all the documents that they broke into Google and Apple and 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 Mozilla and just basically put onto a public server for us to read and enjoy. So um, part of that is that there was a code. So this isn't another next chapter of the Book of Revelations. Let, let's say um, there's also code. We 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 know about the code read about AI, but there was a code yellow about search, and now I'm wondering how many colors of code are there. Like it implies there's a code green. What's the code green mean? Everything's cool. Let's go out for burritos and waffles. I don't know, but yeah, we'll talk about that. Um, we do have a bonus episode. I will be recording a bonus episode for people who are nice enough to support uh, material podcasts and relay FM with some of their 
extra dough. We thank you very much. I'm gonna be talking about the YouTube ad blocker crackdown. YouTube is no longer screwing around when it comes to making sure that you're not running an ad blocker on their service. And it's got some people upset and I have thoughts. We're gonna be talking about all of that right after this break and after I take some more tea. Hello, we're back and I have had, I've made more tea. A bit of humor here, for, uh, sensation seekers, for those of you who are fans of the behind the scenes, uh, pulling pulling the curtain back on the glitter factory here. I usually record these shows with uh, the the audio hijack app for Macintosh, which is amazing for any kind of anytime there's any kind of audio coming from anywhere that you want to record in any fashion, it can solve the problem for you. They just pushed out an update, an amazing update last night, where um, it can now just automatically transcribe your recordings into text. All I got to do is it the a recording thing in Audio Hijack. It's like a set of Legos that you just simply click together and there are like connectors between the two between all of the things. So like right now I'm looking at microphone, connect that to an audio recorder, connect that to another block that is the transcribe to text block, trans- and then connect that to the uh, headphone output so I can hear what I'm saying, that kind of thing. Um, I did, so I decided, hey, I'm going to give that a try to see like if that can make things easier for Jim or anybody. Our editor, hello, Jim, uh, did not realize, did not consider that it's probably going to take a while for <laughs> for this app to process. You've, you've, I've, so I clicked stop, and now I see in the transcribe block this little spinning pencil that says finalizing. So just in case I can't record safely, I'm just going to, I switch to uh, <laughs> to uh, the QuickTime recorder. So if there's any change in audio, I hope you'll appreciate that. Okay, so once again, I, I'm a big fan of huge, uh, huge trillion dollar companies being sued by the government because, or being sued in general, uh, because in a court of law, there's a two years of discovery and those documents, a lot of them are going to become public. There's actually been some controversy on the Google antitrust case because a lot of uh, the, the judge has agreed to keep some of these uh, evidentiary documents that are being produced during the trial, like confidential, or they're redacting a lot of stuff out of it. And so a lot of organizations all the way to the New York times and elsewhere are trying to like sue saying, Hey, you can't do this. This is public. This is a public document. You can't just simply kowtow to whatever uh, a $1.7 trillion company wants you to do. Nonetheless, what is coming up is Cherse. Um, and also the testimony is pretty cool. So Sundar Pichai testified on Monday, just a few days ago for, he was on the stand for three whole hours. Uh, and, uh, now a lot of his testimony was had to do about uh, default settings, default choices. This is much of the department of justice's case against Google search is about how ruthless eh, or at least smart Google is being about doing whatever they have to do to buy people off, buy Apple off so that Google search remains the default search engine on whatever place, whatever place that people are going to be looking for anything. And so a lot of their, a lot of the questions, a lot of the testimony had to do with that. Um, we did, we did find out for instance, uh, just on Friday that, uh, exactly how much money Google is spending on, uh, on getting that, that prime default position, uh, the wall street journal and others had estimated it as something like $18 billion a year, uh, the line share of that going to Apple. Now we know it was $23.6 billion in 2021 alone. And that is a hard figure. That's not an estimate. Uh, and also, uh, Sundar Pichai, he's a very interesting person to uh, be, uh, be deposed, not just uh, f- because he's the CEO of Google and then CEO of Alphabet. Also, when he joined the company in 2004, his very first job was implementing the search toolbar. This was back when s- Internet search was a plugin that you added to whatever uh, whatever browser you uh, you were using. Of course, Chrome didn't exist back then. And then Sundar Pichai led the team that created the Chrome browser. Uh, he was also the lead negotiator with Apple in the 2016 negotiations to renew their deal to make Google search, you know, prima, prima franca on, uh, on Google, on Apple devices. One piece of detail that's, I don't know, interesting, adds a little bit of color. He opted to stand throughout the three hours of testimony. He apparently had a strained back. I don't know. Was he playing, playing cricket over the weekend? I don't know. Uh, so one the one interesting piece of evidence was uh, a 2005 angry letter that Google's lawyers sent to Microsoft at the time. This was when Internet Explorer 7 
had been released. And I mentioned before that search had been plugins before then. This is the first version of the world's most popular web browser at the time where they decided to make search part, uh, just a feature of the browser. And so this angry letter was explaining that, Hey, look, you're, uh, uh, this is, this is not fair. It defaults to Microsoft MSN search and everyone's going to be just using the default. That's anti-competitive. You shouldn't be allowed to do that. Um, so it was going to default to whatever had been set in the previous edition. But of course that was going to be MSN search or a Microsoft search project. Uh, Google argued the letter basically was arguing that, Hey, look, change that default. That's way too hard for users. They're never going to do that. Uh, Google had quote proposed instead that users be prompted to search, select the default search provider. The first time they use the inline search feature and quote, according to that letter in 2005. So basically there, what the government has here is in 2005, Google making exactly the same argument about the importance of the, 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 the market effect of default settings for them. And so, but Pichai said, hey, look, you know, the, we just, at that time we saw that as, and he said, quote, a unique egregious case of how Microsoft were not honoring user preference at all, unquote. Uh, and, so, and, and to be fair, uh, the world's a different it's it's 18 years later the world's a different place people people know the the web browsers are no longer a brand new thing and people and user interface design has come a long way so eh, i don't know if that was a very good line of attack um they also brought forward a 2007 email or was it a memo whatever uh in which making again making the case that google is very 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 well aware of the importance of having that default spot um quote arguing arguing that uh, uh, this was, I'm sorry, this was the memo had to do with internal Google research about, hey, is this going to be important to us or not? And uh, Neatin argues that focusing on homepage market share, I'm quoting the uh, the document here, is one of the most effective things we can do to make gains in search market share. Uh, they, according to that memo in 2007, when people change their browser homepage to Google, they, again, the, the when you create a, a new window in a web browser, what do you see? Well, when they've open to a Google page, uh, users immediately started to do 15% more Google searches. And when they switched away from that setting, they did 27% less. Uh, this is uh, part of the e uh, email from, uh, from another lawyer quote, the problems with the default setting are, I'm sorry, this is the letter from Microsoft. I pasted into the wrong section. No excuses, Andy. Uh, quote, the problems with the default setting are further compounded by how changes to the default are handled, unquote. Quote, as you know, most end users do not change defaults. So when shoved in Sundar Pichai's face, Pichai said on Monday that, hey, Microsoft is just doing good business. They're just protecting their own interests. Um, so again, the government's point was that Google is opposed to set up screens that invite users to choose a default search. They don't want default search to be easy. And they accused Sundar Pichai, hey, what do you have to do with that? And so Pichai said, well, no, actually, we're not opposed to a user being presented with a setup screen when the first time they launch and choose a default search engine. Um, but they, he said that, well, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's just part of the revenue share agreement. Uh, but people, the companies, they don't, want, they don't have to sign that agreement if they don't want to. He said, quote, we're paying for enhanced promotion, unquote, and that's why uh, they get that, uh, that, that, that treasure. Uh, the, the, the rest of his testimony is not worth really getting into. He stuck to Google's defense theme, which is, hey, we just make really super great products uh, and our Google search is just the best. Uh, great products are good, not just for our users, but humanity in general. Yep, uh, this is, of course, part of the well-rehearsed uh, uh, direct examination uh, by Google's own lawyers mentioning that, hey, and because we make Android, that means that phones can be sold for as little as $30, we believe, and like information access to everybody, trying to make the case to this judge that we are not simply uh, undermining the internet. We're not undermining users. We're not even particularly undermining competitors by doing this. This is just what's good. For, we, do, we just pursue what's good for everybody and the fact that we make a lot of money out of it just means that we're doing things really, really smart. That, that's that's significant because remember, this is not a jury trial. They don't have to convince random people who some, re responded to a random jury summons of what's correct. They have to convince this one judge uh, that, look, we're not doing anything that's wrong. Uh, this is uh, – I think this is relevant. Um, Pichai also defended the revenue share deals with Samsung and Apple – 
uh, saying that, look, it's not, uh, partic- I'm sorry, particularly with Samsung saying, look, it's not just about, we're not just buying the default search position. If the fact that we give them all this money, it also is encouraging hardware makers like Samsung to keep Android up to date because they make that part of the revenue sharing deal saying that, look, you can't just simply keep shipping phones with Android 10 when we're on Android 14. If you want to keep uh, getting this, if you want, if you want the, 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 the money faucet to keep on, you're going to keep this thing up to date. Thank you very much. There was, uh, let's see. Questions about the 2016 negotiations with Apple, uh, again, about more than just uh, having the default search. Um, he was asked about uh, query cannibalization, that uh, apparently during the 2016 negotiations, they wanted to have conversations with Apple about the value of Google Search's presence on the iPhone. They were concerned that the that the iPhone OS's built-in search feature, Spotlight, was going to do things like uh, when it senses that I'm uh, I the user I'm doing a search that's related to shopping. Oh, I'm not going to funnel that to Google Search. I'm going to funnel that directly to Amazon. Like meaning, or like you know, take a deal with Amazon to do that, or take a deal with Expedia.com so that if it seems to be travel related, it will not be the search query will not be funneled through Google Search. It'll be funneled through Expedia.com or someone else for whatever kind of reason for that. Um, so that was something, so quote, we wanted to make sure, this is, I'm quoting Pichai in his testimony, that as we contemplate a long-term deal with Apple, the concept of default was preserved in a consistent way. Uh, I mean, he was basically saying overall that what the deals we make, they're a good deal for everybody. Like Apple is, Apple is offering something for sale. Google is buying it for a price that Apple is happy about. Both sides, Google and Apple think that it's the best source, best choice for the user. And everybody seems to be happy about it, except for the department of justice. Um, they also, this wasn't part of Sundar's testimony, but uh, they also introduced the government. Uh, they deposed the CEO of Mozilla on video in two, uh, uh, 2022, uh, about their own relationship with Google search. So Yahoo, as a matter of fact, I forgot about this. They had outbid Google to be the default search engine for the Mozilla browser back in 2014. And in this deposition, the CEO said that it was, I'm quoting here, a failure. Quote, our users made it clear that they look for and want and expect Google, unquote. Uh, and that they kind of were happy to get out of this deal uh, as soon as they could. Uh, this, the fact that the fact that the, the deal was worth, I think something like uh, Google had offered 270 something million dollars. Uh, Yahoo had offered 300 and three, like only $200 million more. That shows you how difficult, different the world is nine years later that this is now a $21.6 billion. <laughs> Don't laugh, Andy, you're going to cough and then you're going to have to start all over again. Uh, it just shows you how, how different, how different the world changed in, in nine years. Um, there was now, were was the CEO of uh, of Mozilla encouraged to be kind to Google? Maybe the government did ask him, "Hey, uh, your compensation is based on engagement and profit and profits uh, with for the browser." Yes, yes. Also, uh, yes, they were. Uh, Mozilla was really eager to get out of that deal with Yahoo, but also another reason for them backing out, basically not renewing or terminating the deal was Yahoo. As part of the agreement, they had agreed to limit ads, and they had like weren't conforming with that agreement. So, uh, oh, well, Google still pays Mozilla hundreds of millions of dollars a year. So that on, if you're particularly a Google fan, you might say, Hey, wow, see, they're still benefiting people. They're benefiting competing browsers, or it could say that, yeah, they're the Mozilla foundation. This is uh, for, for a public foundation, hundreds of millions of dollars a year is a very, very positive thing. So maybe they do want to keep on Google's good sides. Uh, other tidbits. Uh, well, in 2019, Pichai asked to be informed every single time, specifically a member of Google search team defected to Apple. Uh, okay. That was kind of interesting. So yeah, it's a, either the government is still sticking to a, a very conservative case. I don't, I'm still not sure that they're making a lot of headway here. The tricky part is that, uh, how, uh, how does the court decide that a violation of antitrust has happened. This is where I say I'm not a lawyer. I'm just reading lots of stuff that lawyers are, have written and asking lawyers lots of questions about it. And that broadly speaking, the question that Google is going to have to prove is that um, they did not harm competition by this. So it's not a question of what's best for users. I understand that in the EU, laws are a little bit different. That they're more concerned about, well, did the price of something change for people? Uh, 
you know, so yeah, who knows? But again, we're we're just talking to one judge, not a random jury. So they're not they're not going to be swayed by is it not a f- all, all this all this sort of like CBS primetime courtroom drama saying is it not true, Mister Peachai, if that is your real name, that you bribed Apple with twenty billion dollars? It's yeah. The, ooh, wow, wow. We also have this green lasers that we pointed at the check to make sure that just like you've seen in CSI jury, like, Ooh, ah, well, we'll see if that actually works out. We have a little bit more to say about, uh, interesting things that came up during the testimony, including stuff about the, that code yellow. And we'll get to that right after this break tea break. Welcome back. Our tea today. <laughs> this is, this, this episode is definitely brought to you by very, very hot tea. Some, I believe it is a either a lemon zinger or something that tries to be the commercial lemon zinger, but is much, much less expensive. Okay, so let's do a roundup of other, other cool things that came out uh, during testimony last week. Uh, Prabhakar Raghavan was on the stand before uh, Sundar Pichai. You'll recognize Prabhakar Raghavan as pretty much uh, like the brain trust, the, the one brain brain trust at Google, senior vice president, head scientist. He's in charge of pretty much every Google branded product that makes serious, serious bucks like search ads, shopping, you name it. So mostly his testimony was reiterating that as head scientists, how important that Google thinks it is to keep working on search and keeping it right at the top. Uh, he delivered a lot of like money quotes that showed up in a lot of the reporting here. Uh, quote, I feel a keen sense not to become the next roadkill, unquote. Uh, also reiterated how uh, something we've heard for a few years now that Google search is in danger of being seen as irrelevant to younger users. Um, I think Google's lawyers asked him. So asked him about the question, quote, grandpa, excuse me, the expression grandpa Google, unquote. Uh, Raghavan responded saying, quote, unfortunately, yes, I'd heard that term. Grandpa Google will help with things like homework, but when it comes to interesting things, they, meaning younger people, go elsewhere, he said. And referring to how uh, people, uh, uh, millennials, uh, actually more Gen Z than millennials, but how younger users tend even go to TikTok to find answers to things. And that's kind of mind, that's still mind blowing to me. It's also mind blowing to me that I've heard the term now, Grandpa Google, Outside of the comic strip Funky Winkerbean, I'm going to give you a, a, a distraction here, a diversion here. I'm sorry. Um, now, Funky Winkerbean is a comic, one of those old, 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 old comic strips that's been around forever. To the uh, and to its creator's credit, uh, they, they retired the strip, or maybe had the the strip retired for him after about 50 years, and it was for 50 years. So he was this, it was like, uh, Gary Trudeau and Doonesbury, the sole writer, uh, he, uh, the sole artists, I think he had inkers, uh, finish the art for him, but penciling all the, all the art and having it made production ready by somebody else. That is no small thing. Also to his credit, he was a lot more interested in creating a quality product than a lot of people who have achieved a level of success in syndicated newspaper strips. Okay. It's not as though. It's not as though he'd he'd the the strip was a reflection of whatever he as a pretty successful and financially well off 50, 60, 70 year old was doing. It's not as though these high school kids suddenly took up golf or was worried about uh, these kids today with their avocado toast and their pants. What is the deal with their pants? I don't understand their pants. Their pants scare me. So yeah, a lot, so a lot of, a lot of respect, Tom, I can't pronounce his last name, B-A-T-I-U-K, I think. Now I have to, you, you realize that I'm putting all this praise on him because I, I don't hate, I, I, I didn't used to hate read his strip. That's absolutely not true. I was, I was a f- daily reader of his strip because I was often sincerely fascinated by his choices okay, by his creative process, because like he would do so much, like for instance, there was a, uh, he did a, uh, he did a storyline in which 
um, one of his characters, one of his characters had written a book like years ago and that book was being adapted into a movie. So a lot of the action moved to Hollywood. And so you go to his blog, say, Oh, well, I took a trip to LA cause I needed like, what's the architecture like? I need, here's the star of the movie. Like what kind of a house would he live in? What would that look like? And here's pictures of it, all of this work, all of this work, all of this work. And then he'd throw in something like, Oh wow. Excitement. There's a wildfire and people, and the character needs to be rescued and they need to go in. And they say, oh, wow, that's going to be interesting. So uh, wildfires are definitely a thing in the West Coast, as we've discussed with uh, with Flo living and being in the fire line sometimes. Like, So he had like this wildfire essentially consuming all of Los Angeles, like not directly acknowledging it, but giving actual place names about where the fire line was, while sort of not indicating that if truly every square yard of Los Angeles were on fire – that would be a catastrophe of multidimensional proportions. Like not only would it throw this entire industry like into the crapper for a long time, the loss of life would have been astonishing. The ability, the fact that it had reached such a state to such a populated area would, would mean that fire departments are incapable of addressing this, the financial outfit. So this would like doom an entire, this would have financial repercussions that would last for decades. And yet it was more like, Oh geez, I gotta, we gotta like go to this apartment building and save this, this friend of ours. And don't worry, we'll go. We'll my, my apartments, my, my condo has been burned up, but we'll just like live on our boat for the next two or three days. It's like, that's why it was really, really fascinating. So, and another thing he would often do is use jargon and in context made it sound as though this was simply common usage. This is something that everybody said when one of the lead characters, uh, teenage children started dating, there was a big, like two, oh, you're not old enough to have a solo car date, a solo car date. Okay. I parse those words and I understand that you mean you're not allowed to be on a date that involves you being alone in a car with a boy or the person that you could that you could you know be snugging with. I understand that, but solo car date is such a ham-fisted phrase, and I've never heard it anywhere. Like not even oh, here's a funny thing that people in Ohio say. And so the only place previous to this testimony that I had heard the word Grandpa Google. Had been at Funky Winkerbin being like five, six, seven years ago. Like, oh, well, according to Grandpa Google, XYZ. And it kind of, um, I'm a little bit chagrined. I'm a little bit scared that maybe Funky Winkerbean was more in tune with teenagers' relationship with the internet than I am. I have to I have to ponder this. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to fortify this tea with whiskey to get my hand around it, I think. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, so that was Prabhakar Raghavan's testimony. Not, not again, good for a lot of quotes, but let's get to this code yellow, which got a whole bunch of headlines, uh, come, kind of misleading head, headlines. Now I'm going to sort of, uh, paraphrase what some of these headlines were, was that in 2019, there was like a fight between the lines blurring between Google search and Google ads, like as though, um, the firewall that separates the two of them to make sure that whatever the Google search team is doing is not subservient to the desires and the demands of the Google ads team. Uh, and that there was a memo in which someone was really, really concerned about this and alarm. But then again, you can go to the, the actual emails that are the, the, the actual, uh, uh, documents, internal documents are being referenced here. And it's, that wasn't really, it, it wasn't as intense as that, but it was still pretty interesting. So what's happened was that in February of 2019, Google declared a quote, code yellow, unquote, about uh, engagement and revenue from search, which they saw was dropping. And so, again, I, I already talked about this, but what, what turns a code yellow into a code red? Like, was it so it was something they were concerned about, but nothing where they're going to like, hi, I don't know. It's the fact that we have a specific example of a code yellow and a specific example of a code red the human brain wants to find wants now to create a table in which we just we define what these things are but anyway so this code yellow apparently lasted seven weeks and ultimately it led to google creating uh, a more fine-grained metric they decided that it wasn't necessarily that revenue was in a in a free fall and the company was doomed because they're making most of their money uh, from from search, and they have to arrest this. They have to halt and reverse this trend. It was more like they the the metrics they were using to figure out 
how people how much use people are getting out of search and how they're using it wasn't relevant as it was when it was first cranked out so now instead of that metric being based on individual search queries now it looks at groups of queries and apparently that was that worked out but Nonetheless, uh, the documents that the Department of Justice case surfaced shed some light on the relationship between the search team and the ad, ads teams and possible tensions that, arise, that arise during stress. And that is, that is a significant like, part of this conversation. There are a lot of relationships that you can have that you think are doing great, and they are doing great, but then like um, a member of the family gets a drug problem or a member of the family like goes to jail or it gets seriously ill or something. And one of these big changes that puts stress upon the system and suddenly cracks that were invisible under that stress are widening and becoming easier to notice and eventually could cause things to split apart. So it's possible that these, it's uh, these memos and letter emails that have been brought up under this code yellow are kind of pointing out that these tensions were already existing, but because it was still a cash cow and nobody saw a problem with it. People were sort of made them easy to ignore. Uh, but the, the critical, the critical document here is from, uh, the, the then head of, uh, Google search, the youth engineering team, Ben Gomes, uh, in, uh, March of 2019, uh, he said that his team was quote, getting too involved with ads for the good of the product and the company. Uh, the email is dated March 23rd, 2019. So the code red, the, the code yellow had been going on for about a month. Uh, very, very interesting. What, what, it, what the email is, is he had written a draft of an email that he intended to send to Prabhakar Raghavan, who was in charge of that whole business division. Uh, and he was wanted to ask his personal team for feedback on that email before he sends it. So this is um, certainly well-considered dialogue. However, he acknowledged that if you need me to kind of roll back, if you think this is going to be taken wrong, if this is going to be bad for us, let me know. We'll, let's, let's talk about this. Uh, but it does read as though he's very concerned at that time about a breakdown in the relationship between the search and the ads teams. Um, he's the tone of the emails seems like he's worried that uh, the ads team sees the search team as an obstacle and as a part, as, as opposed to being part of this team of Google employees that are all trying to increase the growth of search people who have the same objectives and they're coming at it from different angles. Uh, quote, I have to admit this is part, not part of the uh, body of the email that he intended to send to Prabhakar Raghavan, but the header for, uh, that was intended for his team quote, I have to admit that I'm feeling annoyed both personally and on behalf of the team unquote. And he seemed to be reacting to uh, the ad teams, an allegation from the ads team that the search team just doesn't care about growth. Because he's in the in the email itself, uh, in the draft of the email, he is very very insistent that no no no, that nothing can be further of the truth, and keeps pointing for point for point about things he's concerned about uh, how they can increase increase revenue, but it also shows that he personally thought that his team and the ads team were coming at the problem of increasing engagement and increasing growth from the opposite ends, and perhaps that the ad team's point of view was was wrong. Um, he said that's hypothetically, well, look, I mean, we could increase uh, engagement in the number of queries, uh, by quote, engagement hacking unquote. And by that he meant disabling features that uh, reduce search queries that happen by mistake. Like when you make a typo, uh, what if it's, uh, what if uh, search didn't autocorrect that to something? Hey, did you mean this instead of that? What, what if we just put it through as is, and people would have to submit a second search result. Like we, they could game the system. Um, but he said that he doesn't want to do that. Uh, he pushes ideas instead that he's been pitching for a long, long time that quote, my claim is that our best defense against query weakness is compelling user experiences that make users want to come back unquote. And here talks about shopping, which is something that he says in, in this email to, uh, uh, to Prabhakar that, Hey, I've been pushing this for years and years and years that we could make the shopping experience much, 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 much better. Um, we could also, uh, increase engagement by focusing on surfacing related questions to the query. Uh, basically the point that he was making in this ad, in, in this uh, email was that ad the ads department, these ads executives, they tend to think of whole page experiences in Google search. Whereas he's suggesting that the real goal here would be to create enhancements to functionality that create not only people having more loyalty, increased loyalty to, to Google search because it always gives them what they want, but also it would create new opportunities for ads, new places, new experiences. 
So it was very heartfelt. It made me feel really, really good, at least about now. Uh, I should say Ben Gomes is no longer with Google. And I don't know if he, if it was, re- I don't think he was replaced by an ad person, but uh, but at least it shows you that as recent as 2019, this is the sort of stuff that is very much on their mind. It's not about, hey, what do we have to, we will do whatever it takes, even if it dings the user experience to make sure that search remains increasingly profitable. He's, he as the head person is saying, no, 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 no. We have to make it better. We have to make it more useful. Um, so that's, that's, that's another thing that I don't know. Again, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a trial judge, so I don't know how this affected the judge, but it also seems to once again, reiterate the idea that, look, our goal with Google search is to make it the best search engine, the best search product possible. And that's, we feel as though if we, if we screw that up, we're going to lose. So this is why we're focused on creating the best experiences for the user and for whoever it is who creates the device that Google search is going to be running on. So yeah, I, I mean, I could be surprised who knows, but I've, uh, the reason why I keep on top of this the story is that I'm looking for this big smoking gun that says that oh yes this is this is Google being super super evil and terrible. Um, there are even some stuff that it's 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 worthwhile too. Like I keep poking through uh, the FTP uh, FTP that's the the web page that has just a, a list of all the documents that have been filed, uh, and some of them are really really dry and boring, but some of them are interesting. There's a just yesterday. Uh, there was an internal Google slide deck uh, about a uh, about a meeting in which they're trying to figure out uh, why Bing's they they determined that Bing's uh, image search on Bing the latency was way way lower than Google image search that Google image search was slower and they're trying to figure that out and they're working out all the technical issues they calculated that 300 milliseconds later that they they both uh, both Google image search and Bing image search search res- light up at the same time, so to speak, when person types enter. However, there's like a 300 millisecond delay that they can't account for. Uh, and the slide deck was talking about the technical reasons why that happens. And they think that has to do with how Bing was hosting its hosting its files, how, how it was hosting its images, and ways that they were thinking about mitigating that. So once again, they weren't just simply saying, oh, we'll buy our way into people's hearts. It's like, no, Bing is a competitor. They do, they do things better than us. And when they do things better than us, we have to figure out how to be better than Bing again. Now the the other the other cool thing I, I love I love that we're seeing slide decks we're seeing like the dog food that like even Apple and Google have to eat like when they're sitting through all these briefings and meetings so there was a uh, slide deck from January 2013 inside Google this was uh, Eddie Q uh, to uh, CEO Tim Cook uh, entitled "Competing on Privacy" so this is all about like as we continue to market the iPhone as we continue to market ourselves against Google. Uh, and most uh, and other people too, but mostly against Google. Like what what is in, uh, what is integrally a unique Apple advantage that others people can't other people can't count on. And obviously, one of the things they were homing on was privacy. And 2013, they weren't necessarily hitting this as hard as they are now right now. But it was an interesting deck. They were talking about uh, there. There's a nice timeline of what they consider to be competitors approach to privacy is just this timeline of the 20 aughts about all the awful, awful and nasty things that like Facebook was doing that Yahoo was doing that Microsoft was doing. And of course that Google was doing, there was a, a full, I don't know if this is significant that when they, I don't also don't know how many people are in this meeting, but when there's a full page quote, when there's a slide, that's just one piece of text, uh, they decided to put in uh, the president, the president had 20, a quote from Eric Schmidt uh, of Google from 2010 quote, Google's policy is to get right up to the creepy line, but not cross it. I would argue that implanting things in your brain is beyond the creepy line, at least for the moment until the technology gets better. Yeah, that's pretty creepy. <laughs> and, the, the, and, and I realize that none of the rest of the slide deck is talking about like Google's entry into the medical device market. I think that they're just trying to like, I don't know. Maybe they're indicating that, look, if we want to make them look stupid on this subject, they've given us the whole Lego kit about how we could snap together a whole spaceship. (laughs) (laughs) Made myself laugh. I'm sorry. A whole spaceship, a a glorious Taj Mahal uh, of how terrible Google is about privacy. Uh, (laughs) The, uh, that goes forward to talking that a three or four slides are just side by side table, of here is how Apple handles privacy in this situation. Here's how Google handles privacy, making the consistent mark that nearly everything you do that is a Google service is tied to a single Google account and combines data across services. Whereas Apple will even let you do uh, use different accounts for different services. So 
for maps, it's, uh, it's associating your maps activity with one uh, Apple ID. The things you buy in the App Store through a second Apple ID, your iCloud transactions are through a third ID, and they don't swap data between the three. Uh, that Siri is more private than Assistant. Uh, even search on an Apple device not tied to any Apple ID, and there's a firewall between uh, Apple's, they call it iAd. They, have, they, have, they do have an advertising business, although it's just, obviously it's puny. It mostly has to do with developers buying ads for apps and services uh, on on the app store they don't really there was a there was a time ages ago 2008 i think just a couple years after the iphone i think where uh, steve jobs himself during a keynote tried to introduce an ad platform where it was a very steve jobs approach to ads where oh and every single ad is going to be beautiful it's going to be a beautiful piece of content and interactive and stylish where advertisers were like we don't want to have to spend eight hundred thousand dollars for to create this beautiful car ad all you do is say here's the car here is a pretty man or a pretty woman or both of them draped across it you will your life will look good if you have one of these cars click this link and we'll be in touch that's we can do that for eighty dollars, sir. We don't want we don't want your iAd service, but and and that's that's kind of the point of like why Apple, of course, jumped on privacy as a very very marketable thing because they don't they can they can attack Google on privacy a because oh my God you can attack Google on privacy all day and all night uh, they are guilty 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 but also Apple doesn't make many money off of ads so they're not cutting their own throats with that. So if they were, it's it's the same balance between how Google can attack Apple for uh, for lock-in, for not being open enough, because Google does not make money by having totally proprietary services. They make money by making sure that you can run Google Docs on anything with a pulse. Uh, they 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 whereas uh, Apple Notes, you're very very much firewalled inside and sandboxed inside the Apple ecosystem. This is why I don't use Apple Notes. It's a very nice app, but I can't use it if I can't use it on every single device that I use today and every single device I might use in the future. So yeah, th that's always been to me a little bit of the snake oil of Apple, but they do make great points. Um, but the other, the, the, the final, uh, the final two slides again, full, not tables, not drive, dry things in capital. Uh, uh, actually, I've, I've forgotten whether it's in the capital letters or not. I have it in my notes as all capital letters, but in big, big letters, just the phrase, Android is a massive tracking device, uh, followed by, in the next next slide, a 2010 Steve Jobs quote, quote, we take privacy very seriously. A lot of people in the Valley think we're very old-fashioned about this. Ah, how sweet. As he takes one last sip of tea. Oh. Ah, thank you, tea. I think that's going to wrap it up for this very special and hope I hope that it came across. Okay. Again, I was a little bit under CPU underclocked throughout it, but I had a good time with this. Uh, please. Uh, Flo is definitely going to be back next week. Uh, migraines willing uh, go to Gizmodo for the stuff that she's been writing recently. Uh, you can go to owe that flow on social media to see what she's been mentioning. Uh, she's very, very active on threads. So that's another good reason to get onto threads. I am an outgoing Twitter and Instagram and Blue Sky. Uh, hear me on Boston Public Radio uh, at WGBHnews.org or the WGBH News channel on YouTube. Actually, if you're in Chicago, I'm going to be talking on WGN News for about a half hour about technology, 7.30 local time on Tuesday. I'm afraid I don't have the link for you, uh, but I assume that you know how <laughs> you know how Google search works. Think about what we're what we've just been talking about for the past uh, for the past hour, uh, and once again, thank you so much for everybody who supports us through memberships. So we really do appreciate uh, that money, uh, and also again that show of support is very 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 kind. Our special episode this week again is going to be about uh, YouTube ads. Uh, well, uh, I'll I'll recaffeinate before then, so we'll be we'll be fine. But if you want to join the fun again, we have we have a, a special. Uh, 10 to minute to half hour long members episode. Actually, usually it's about 20 minutes to 30 minutes. I don't think we've ever done a short one. Uh, go on to uh, relay.fm slash material and there'll be buttons at the very, very top where you can sign up and you'll get not only be supporting us, you'll be supporting all of Relay FM. You'll not only get our, uh, our uh, uh, members only episodes, you'll be getting members only content from the entire Relay network. And we got some really fun smart and uh, and entertaining people on this network i should know because i listen to them on my off time 
So that's going to be it for this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening this time. We hope that you're going to be listening to us again next week. And until then, everybody, please have a happy, safe, and healthy seven days. Bye-bye.